I always celebrated Christmas just a few weeks ago, and as we look back upon all that that holiday means in terms of Christ's incarnation and ministry, atonement, and resurrection, it's easy for us to wrap ourselves up, so to speak, in the celebration of this good news and forget what it means to, to leave Christmas, to leave Easter. Christ doesn't just become a man and, and die for us and then serve us so that we can be complacent. He doesn't do all of that so that we can be lazy. He fills us with the Holy Spirit so that we will obey him and expand his kingdom. And part of that obedience is to perfect in our own lives and sufferings the sacrifice of Christ. And it's in that spirit that I direct you to our morning's passage in 1 Samuel 23. Please stand as we read God's word. It is 1 Samuel 23, verses 14 through 29. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish, on the, on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. No one see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it is told me, he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah in the south of Jeshimon, and Saul and his men went down to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went on one side of the mountain, David and his men on the other side of the mountain. David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the lessons that we learn from it, not only of David, but of Christ, even ourselves. Pray for wisdom for us today as we listen, as we read, and study. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
Well, in the last half of, of 1 Samuel, there is a key theme in the sufferings of David on the painful path to the throne. You see, on every page, we will see David's suffering. And many of the Psalms, for example, were written during this time and they, they reveal what's going on in David's heart. I've lost control of the slides, so if you can advance that for me in the back. Thank you. There's a section from one of them. It's Psalm 56, 1 through 11. It says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. For many attack me proudly, and when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are evil against me. They stir up strife and lurk. They watch my steps as they wait for my life. For their crime will they escape. In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? That was written during this time period. And at the point we've reached in the story, the pressure on David has become immense. Saul's determination to eliminate David has turned into a nationwide manhunt. Saul is focused. He's focused on discovering David's whereabouts to the point that he neglects everything else. All his other duties, even to the extent that he brutally punishes any who offer David help. He kills, for example, not only Ahimelech, the priest whom we saw last week gave David bread from the tabernacle, but he kills all of Ahimelech's family. David could not even trust himself to the people of Calah, as we see back in verse 12, a people whom he had recently rescued from the Philistines. The thanks that they give him is to sell him out to Saul. So David is on the run. He's headed south, further from Saul's base in Gibeah, that's in the north. And verse 15 says that David was in the wilderness of Ziph. And if you look on the map that... For some of you who picked up the outline in the back, I have a little map for you. It's helpful. Uh, you'll see that Ziph was in southern Judah, about 12 miles southeast of Kela in the hills. And notice how the text says that David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. So there's this, this hatred from Saul's side that comes entirely from Saul, one direction, he comes to seek his life. It's been building ever since David had killed Goliath and the crowds. The women had sung how Saul had struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Saul had tried to wound or kill David with a spear multiple times. And now he has, like I said, abandoned every other duty, surrounds himself with thousands of his best men, and follows David from city to city intent on destroying him. 
Can you imagine what it's like to see the king of Israel and his men coming after you, wherever you go, bent on destroying you and being helpless in return? David would later say, I will not lift a finger against the Lord's anointed. So what what could he do? His only resource was to keep fleeing, to hide, to plead for his life during the times that the two have the opportunity to talk. So not only is David fearful for his life, but he's lonely, he is despairing. As we read earlier in Psalm 56, of course, If you were going to look for a location to lift up your spirits and encourage you, the wilderness of Ziph is not the place to go. It is a hot, barren, dry desert that that then kind of descends into the Dead Sea area. David's at the edge of that wilderness, at the base of the foothills that are south of the future city of Jerusalem, called Jebus on the map. And here, there's a forest Where he is, there's a forest of straggly trees. That's the best hiding place in some of these areas outside of these rocks, these little mountainous hill areas. There's just not a lot of places, caves to hide. Bottom line, think, day after day of looking behind you. Ever had a time like that in your life? Day after day looking behind you, trying to find a place to hide in a dry and inhospitable environment in which you can trust no one. So for the time being, Saul is unable to find his enemy, but someone else is able to find David. And you can see it in verse 16 that Jonathan found David. I like how we read that Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God by telling him not to fear man. How could it be possible for David, who had seen that Saul had come out to seek his life, not to fear? Well, think about David's perspective. Saul's hand is the one that had held and hurled the spear. Saul had killed Ahimelech in the priest's family. Saul was the king. He has at his disposal all the resources of the land. How can he not fear Saul? But Jonathan knew the answer. And that is by hearing and believing the promises of God. Jonathan tells David, you shall be king over Israel. That was the least likely conclusion of the moment. But you shall be king of Israel and I shall be next to you. It's the son of the king talking. Saul, my father, also knows this. David, why do you think he is so intent on pursuing you? It's because he knows what God has said. He is doing everything he can to disrupt God's plan. But David, you need to trust God. You need to believe, let's put it this way, you need to believe God's promise as much as my dad does. Right? And so what David hears from Jonathan overcomes what David sees. The hand of my father will not find you, Jonathan says. Well, the difference the promise of God makes in the light of what we see is very important. 
We see it again later in Jesus' life as he and the disciples approached Jerusalem. He could see what was happening. It was coming, and he helped the disciples to see it too. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Now imagine David being actually caught by Saul and being bound by Saul. It's that that type of thought in the disciples' minds. Everything was going so great. And that's what they could see, and like David, they were greatly distressed. But they needed to hear the promise that would strengthen their hand in God. And that's why Jesus continued to tell them, and the Son of Man will be raised on the third day. So when things look threatening or overwhelming in your life, remember the promises of God. And friends, if you know a fellow believer who is struggling with getting caught up by only what he or she sees, be a Jonathan. Strengthen them. Strengthen their hand in God by reminding them of God's great promises. Turn with me, if you will, next to 2 Corinthians 4. 1, 7 through 18. I have it up here behind me for you as well. But we're going to be referring to this as a second passage today. So you might want to go ahead and turn there. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, and then 7 through 18. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. Friends, as we read this, I want you to put yourself in this passage. I am afflicted in every way, but I am not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in my body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in my body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. you struggle with knowing why you're afflicted, please remember that part. Death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence, for it is all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. There is a purpose. So do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
2 Corinthians 4 is the modern Christian's version of 1 Samuel 23. David is hard-pressed on every side, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, but he is not crushed or forsaken or destroyed. Why? Because he has the promise of God. How will you not lose heart? By remembering the promise of God that your light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for you a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The fact is that you will have desert experiences. You are engaged in a spiritual battle with the world, Satan, and the flesh, all of which will attack you mercilessly. You will face the consequences of the curse. There will be disappointments and challenges and losses. And just like King Saul pursuing David, you will have times in which you feel helpless and hopeless. But you are not without hope. You may even think you have a brief rest at times, but then just as we see in verse 19 of 1 Samuel 23, you're discovered by the enemy and the battle heats up again. And so it's almost as if you have little oases of calm, right? Little rest periods in the eye of the storm. But 2 Corinthians 4 reminds us that there is a purpose to all of this. Paul says we carry about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Why? Let's see if we can figure that out. Paul writes in Philippians 3, I count everything as loss. This is a familiar passage. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. For Paul meets Christ on the road to Damascus, foremost in his mind are all of his gains and his successes. His ancestry is from the tribe of Benjamin, his zeal. He's passionate about the study of the scriptures, his work. He is diligently persecuting Christians. In his mind, there's only one potential loss, and that is the prospect that the people might actually follow Jesus. That's old Saul. But after his encounter with Christ, Paul realizes that these priorities are all wrong. They're backwards. He looked at everything he had once considered important, now considers them a loss. His ancestry, loss. Zeal over persecuting Christians, loss. Knowledge of traditions, loss. In fact, the more he thinks about the relative values of life in the world and the greatness of Christ... He goes on to say, I count all things to be lost in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Why is that so important? And as Paul says, why is it, why is it important to know the fellowship of his suffering? Well, remember what we learned on Christmas Sunday from Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with thing, God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. If you want to know Christ... 
part of the knowledge is engaged in knowing what it is to be a servant, as we learned, and, and to suffer through sacrifice. That is why Paul says that there is a fellowship of suffering between us and Christ. Jesus had no place to lay his head. He gave up the many things that the world usually has to occupy our focus. He gave those things up. And, and nobody, of course, enjoys that kind of sacrifice. Nobody enjoys suffering and pain and tribulation. Nobody loves misery. But we know that suffering of this type produces something that we do like. Namely, a stronger sense of hope. Which comes from the experience of patient perseverance and the understanding of God's approval through the refinement of our character. Like sifting flour, God is sifting out our impurities. He is purging out the dross through suffering so that what remains looks more and more like Christ. And in the similarity of our character and mind with those of Christ comes a greater awareness and knowledge of God. And all of this, I think, is the practical application of what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 4, that we manifest the life of Jesus in our suffering. But to whom are we manifesting it? To the watching world. There's, there's something comforting in knowing that Christ calls us to sacrifice for the sake of others. It keeps us from being thrown off guard when we do suffer. It keeps us from giving up. And it frees us to rejoice knowing that our suffering has a purpose. In fact, it is necessary that we suffer and sacrifice. And going back to 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes that we are jars of clay. And as clay jars, we are made of common material. Psalm 103.14 reads, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. He knows how easy it is for us to lose sight of the promises. He knows how easy it is for us to be overwhelmed in that moment by our pain. As vessels, we are designed, though, to contain something. And 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So, glorify God with your body. You see, you are a fragile vessel. You are a, a clay jar, but you are a purchased vessel. You are a priceless vessel, for you were made to be a place where God lives and abides by His Spirit. And what an honor that God should condescend to abide in us. And yet, here we are, vessels made of the earth, revealing this astounding contrast in 2 Corinthians 4 between God's majestic holiness and our earthiness. Isn't that amazing? 
Those jars are not filled with water or grain or any mundane thing. They are filled with the very indwelling presence of God. And in a beautiful way, Paul describes that treasure we carry as the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Hear that again. That indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in us is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And he says that this treasure is the power of God. But it isn't the kind of power that the world seeks, right? This is where we tie everything together. The power of God is a power that is revealed in the suffering of God's saints. You see, you do not conquer this world by earthly force. You overcome the strongholds of the enemy by suffering and bearing your cross for Jesus. Paul says we are afflicted in every way. But the fact is, we're not crushed, we are not driven in despair, we are not forsaken, we are not destroyed. It is that power to rise above your suffering with humility and joy that causes the world to take notice. Because everybody else would give up. Everybody else would be crushed. And without purpose. But look again at verse 7 in 2 Corinthians 4. We have this treasure in jars of clay, why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This power is from God. It is not from us. And friends, when you do find yourself being pressed and perplexed and persecuted and forsaken, you cannot reach down for some hidden strength and resolve and power of your own to bring you up to this attitude of humility and joy and perseverance and patience and hope. It must be recognized it is a power from God. And so down in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 4, he says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is renewed day by day. Because that momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal way to glory. There is light ahead. Your suffering not only precedes the glory that you will experience, it actually helps produce the glory. There is a real causal connection between how you endure your hardships and challenges and trials now and how much you will be able to enjoy the glory of God in the ages to come. Did you catch that? 2 Corinthians 4 says there is a real causal connection between how you endure hardship now and how much you will be able to enjoy the glory of God in the ages to come. What that means is there is not one moment of pain that is wasted, that is accidental, that is without value. Jonathan is trying to tell David that. 
David had had to move his family to a Philistine city. He'd spent every day on the run. The people that he helped inevitably tell Saul where he's hiding. He starts all over again. It's a frantic escape. It's a search for a new place to hide. And yet not one moment of that pain is wasted. Jonathan reminds David of the light at the end of the tunnel. He will be king. But God reminds you of the eternal way to glory forever. That is the light at the end of your tunnel. But even more was accomplished. As I said a moment ago, our response to suffering is a powerful tool that God uses to influence and affect those who are watching. According to 1 Samuel 24, Saul eventually caught up to David. It was at a different location in the wilderness of Engedi, And he had 3,000 men and he traps David. And one night David sneaks out and takes a corner of Saul's clothes as proof that he had the opportunity to kill Saul if there had been that intention. And so he shows Saul, look, as proof. And he explains, I serve the Lord faithfully. I will not lay a hand against the Lord's anointed, despite what you're doing to me. And what I want you to see is these verses here in 1 Samuel 24. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? There's much, that we could, there's much we could talk about in that. There are, there are times when, when people that are afflicted, enslaved to sin, and suffer from even certain types of, of mental disorders, there are moments of clarity. It's like they, they change to a different person. You know, weeps. Is that you, my son David, as if... You know, what am I doing? My life has become this, this pursuit of you to everything else. And suddenly clarity comes and he says, what am I doing? He says, you're more righteous than I am. For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you've declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord has put me in your hands. For if a man finds an enemy, will he let him go away safe? May the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know you shall surely be king. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. I'm reminded of how Paul says in in that 2 Corinthians 4 passage. He says, we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal life. Manifest, I said, to the watching world, like a soul. Colossians 1.24 says, I rejoice that I am filling up in my flesh what is lacking for you in the afflictions of Christ. We are manifesting the death and life of Christ through our own afflictions to a watching world. And when you suffer for the sake of righteousness... Even when the world is reviling you and pursuing you and persecuting you, it is possible that the Lord can bring conviction. They will see Christ in your behavior, in your words, your actions. Jesus said that when he is lifted up before the world, he will draw his sheep to himself. God will draw his people to himself through your suffering. 
That's what you're doing. You are lifting up Christ. You are manifesting the life of Christ. And therefore, you are extending his ministry to others. If you are ever asking yourself the question, why? What purpose is there in all of this? You are lifting up Christ to the watching world. And people like Saul can only respond with conviction to the heart. They can continue to suppress that truth. Yes, that's the lesson of Romans 1. They can continue to suppress truth and reject it and lie to themselves, but there will be times in which there will be moments of clarity. They will be convicted by sin, and there will be many whom God will draw to himself. Saul says, David... You have rewarded my evil, my sin, with good. The world doesn't act like you. You are clearly righteous. And may the Lord reward you for what you have done to me this day. Now, I don't want you to just treat this sermon as kind of a a follow David's example type of sermon. Throughout the series, we've been looking at David as the once upon a time king. But Jesus, the eternal king, and, and asking, what does this all bring out about Christ? Well, Jesus suffered far more than David. He suffered nearly every day during his ministry, and likely before as well. And yet I can't think of a more purposeful person than Jesus Christ, who undertook his most urgent work ever assigned, announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God, restoring, redefining Israel's hope, bringing salvation. In his spare moments, he casts out demons, he heals the sick, he raises the dead, he disciples all who will carry on his work, and throughout all of that, he has this attitude of nearly unbroken calm. He's responsive to others, he never gives caught up in their anxiety. And I like what Mark Buchanan says in his book, Your God is Too Safe. Good book, by the way, for you to read. Your God is Too Safe. He writes, at the heart of Jesus' ministry was a holy must. He must go through Samaria. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer. Everything he did or refused to do centered around that. A true must both constrains and liberates. It brings wonderful clarity. It allows for great seriousness and great playfulness. And it makes for serious, playful greatness. And I think Buchanan is right. Most of our anxiety and frustration over our trials comes not from knowing what we must do. Or I should say from not knowing what we must do. It's it's far too easy to get caught up in the routine of life. And what we do is we see our challenging bumps in in the road. We see them as exactly that, just bumps in the road that are threatening to derail us from our routines. And the really tough challenges... Those make us question God and his purpose. They cause us deep anxiety and they they cause us to ask, why would God do this to me? Why am I the focus and the target? Why was I the one in two million? You can't avoid the trials of life. You can try to take a vacation, but you can't try to escape. 
You can try to conquer them in your own strength. You can try to explain them away. You can fill your life with busyness. But at the end of the day, God is calling you to die to yourself. And he says, do not lose heart. Because this light affliction is but for a moment. But you say, my afflictions certainly don't seem light. My parent is sick, or my life is unraveling bit by bit, or I've lost my job. God says, don't lose heart, because your suffering is working towards a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. You may be saying, I've heard you preach on trial several times now over the years. Each time you told me it's a gift. You've told me that God desires what is best for me, and now... You're encouraging me to compare the lightness and shortness of this affliction with the weightiness and eternality of glory with God, and I get it intellectually. I can follow the dots and A and B and C, and it all equates, and God said it, so it must be true, but I don't know how to get my heart there. I don't want to suffer. And I don't want to look for the opportunity. <laughs> I'm tired. I'm weary, actually. So weary that I want to give up. I'm not fit to bring God glory. I feel more like a Moses or Elijah who said, just kill me now. You're not alone in the heart weariness. Some of David's psalms express exactly that. As you read through the Psalms, a drying up of the bones. Some of you have been at the depths of despair, probably identify with what David meant when he said, my bones just feel all dried up inside. Question of whether it's possible to keep going. Eventually, most feel like they want to give up. And the encouragement is that we have the stories of David and of Jesus, and of others who persevered, and as 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And for this very reason, listen to what Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be the all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's a lot there. That's, a, that's like graduate school doctrine in the Bible. But the main points are everything that you need 
you have already as a believer. And for this reason, says Peter, make every effort. Add things bit by bit, step by step. Though everything you need for godliness is at hand, you won't actually be acting godly until you've got some more basic things in place. What's Peter saying? He's saying hike up the local hills first before you attack Everest. You want to get to the point where you can joyfully bear up under the hardest struggle? You want to get to the point where if someone strikes you, your gut reaction is actually to bless them in return? Begin where Peter begins. Add to your faith. And then add to your goodness. And then you can see the list. Peter says that if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, and if you, if you didn't catch that phrase, it's important that you do, increasing measure, which implies you don't... Po- it's not if you possess all these qualities at once, but if you possess them in increasing measure, they will keep you from becoming ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of Christ. You won't just say intellectually, I know these things, but you'll actually know them from the heart. There is a sense of progression. There's a sense of growth in what Peter's saying. So why did I choose that passage? It's because I know how easy it is to say it's overwhelming and it's difficult and I'm not quite there. And my encouragement to you is keep making the effort. Keep going along this path of growth. But it's important that you make the effort Peter finishes by saying those who lack these qualities are nearsighted having forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. You see, if you don't make the effort to work through the trials of your faith by the grace of God, if you don't keep putting one step in front of the other and instead you just sit down and give up, you'll eventually develop, Peter says, a spiritual blindness and amnesia. You'll forget that God has actually cleansed you from your sin, that you are a new creation, that you aren't stuck, friends, but that you have a purpose. And you'll be weighed down with the dead weight of guilt and regret and fear and weariness. So I encourage you today to believe that your purpose is to join with this community of believers and impact our world by dying to yourself. Believe that God saved you in order to worship Him and tell the people of the world about Him so that He might receive the glory. And when you face the frustrations and they will be there, remember that big picture. Remember the eternal weight of glory that lies ahead. Dream about the possibility that God will change this dark moment of our society, even if it is in small ways, even if it's just a family member or a friend or a fellow church member. Thank the Lord for the gift of suffering. Dave Langley shared with me something that his niece wrote this past week. I think it applies to what we've talked about today. She writes, today is... My first chemo infusion since we wrapped up treatment three years ago. 
And while there's been some dread and grief leading up to today, knowing all that this entails, there have been many more mercies and a little bit of yoga to balance it all out. C.S. Lewis wrote that heaven works backwards, that once we're finally home, we'll look back at our deepest suffering on earth and say, that was heaven all along, because we'll finally see the breathtaking glory and joy that was going on behind the scenes of our anguish. And so today, there's a bit of heaven unfolding, even here in this chemo ward. It's a good attitude. Octavius Winslow in Christ's Symphony to Weary Pilgrims writes, It is I who formed your burden, who carved your cross, and who will strengthen you to bear it. It is I who mixed your cup of grief and will enable you to drink it with meek submission to your Father's will. I've sent it all in love. It is I who ordered, arranged, and controlled it all. In every stormy wind... In every darksome night, in every lonesome hour, in every rising fear, the voice of Jesus shall be heard saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. So your God has promised that he will go with you into whatever suffering he allows you to endure. He's promised that he will take you in your weakness, in your ignorance, in your sin, and he will forgive you and clothe you with his righteousness. He has said he will take your weakness and he will make it strong, that you will share in the eternal inheritance of all the blessings that are to be had in Christ Jesus. Do you desire that? God desires that for you. And the amazing thing about that gracious desire is that in the process of making you joyful and showering you with those blessings, he gets the glory. And that is an amazing grace. Let's pray. Father, you have blessed us with our opportunities to be challenged, even as David was challenged, being pursued in the desert. He was a despairing run. It may have seemed like failure. It may have caused him to... Despair, even as we see in the Psalms so often. And yet, Lord, I ask that you would help us to remember the big picture. Help us to be thankful for what you have caused in us and and made happen in us and through us so that we would manifest the life of Christ in our suffering. That through our attitudes and how we bear up, Impatience and humility, searching, seeking, longing, hoping for joy that the world will take notice. So there will be conviction like Saul was convicted by David's attitude. And that ultimately you will refine us. You will help us to enjoy and, and appreciate the future eternal weight of glory that you have said awaits us. But also, Lord, you will draw your people to yourself. I pray, Lord, today that you would be with those who are despairing today, those who are anxious, those who are fearful, those who are weighted down, and I pray that you would lift them up with these encouragements from your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.